You're listening to To Dine for the Podcast, the Shot Put Media production, presented by MasterCard. Start something priceless. What's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. To Dine For the Podcast is brought to you by Terlato Wine Group. American National Insurance, and Spiritless. At the beginning of this podcast, I ask, what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? While the To Dine For podcast provides the restaurants and the people, where are you getting your wine? Uncork.com is an online wine shop that brings the best part of buying wine right into your home. This carefully curated collection of wines range in price to accommodate every budget, from everyday best buys all the way to very special occasion wines. Uncork.com features family-owned wineries from all corners of the globe, California to France, Washington to Italy. If you're looking to broaden your wine horizons, learn about new producers and get great customer service, just like your local wine shop, head over to uncork.com. Use code TDF20 to get 20% off your first purchase. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Before we get to the podcast, I want to share the story of three young women who are carving their own path in the beverage industry. They started a company called Spiritless. Their first product is called Kentucky 74, and it's a non-alcoholic bourbon. You can use it as the base for so many delicious mocktails or drink it by itself on the rocks. What I like to do is go halvesies, meaning you mix it with a foolproof bourbon to lower the ABV in your cocktail. I put a little honey, cinnamon, and an orange slice, and it is truly delicious. If you'd like to enjoy an evening cocktail with no guilt, you can use promo code TODINEFOR to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For The Podcast, where we meet the world's most creative and inspiring people at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is Beatrice Acevedo. Access to capital is very difficult, primarily for women, even more for Latinas, even more for immigrants, and even more for women over 50. So I check all those boxes of, you're never going to get funded, lady. Mm -hmm. And yet, again, I was incredibly privileged that I didn't reach out to my first two investors. They reach out to me. Beatrice Acevedo is one of the leading inspirational voices and Latina entrepreneurs in the U.S. She has dedicated her career to empowering and opening doors for the next generation of Latino leaders. 
Beatrice started her career in media at a very young age, first on the radio, later on TV. She won three Emmys, one MTV Music Award, and a Media Correspondent Award. She later became a tech media entrepreneur as the co-founder and president of MeToo, the leading digital media brand for young Latinos in the U.S. Under her leadership, she went on to raise $50 million in funding, led by some of the most successful venture capital groups in California. The mentorship initiatives that she created through her Accelerator program have provided invaluable access to the next generation of multicultural storytellers. I can't wait for you to hear my interview with Beatrice Acevedo. Hi, Beatrice. How are you? Good, and yourself? Very nice to meet you. It's wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much for being on to Dine for the podcast. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm turning off my phone because it's going crazy with, I'm sure, like non-important calls. So (laughs) there we go. Well, I'm going to begin this podcast the way I begin all my podcasts, which is asking the guest and asking you for your favorite restaurant. If we were to dine together, where would you love to go and why? My favorite restaurant, hands down, is called La Casita Mexicana. And it is in Bell, California, in Los Angeles. And it's owned by two amazing Mexican chefs called Jaime Martin del Campo and Ramiro Arvizu. They're master chefs. They have actually have hosted master chefs uh, Estrellas, which is sort of like the Spanish version of master chef. And I met them so many years ago before they were superstars at this very small, small, small restaurant that they own in Bell, which I think had like, I don't know, eight to 10 tables. Just it was like the best kept secret. And the food is unbelievable. It's primarily from their grandmothers. None of them actually were chefs at the start of their careers. They worked in the travel industry out of all places. Really? And then they came together as best friends to open this very, very small restaurant, what we would call in Mexico a cenaduria, which is really like almost when people would open up their homes and just outside there, they would put a few tables and feed you in an incredible way, just like your grandmother would. And they continued. I mean, obviously, the restaurant has expanded and it's now a staple for, you know, every celeb that you can imagine. But it continues to have the most incredible flavors that take you back to your childhood and to, you know, just that emotional connection that you have with so many memories growing up. Okay, I love everything about what you just said. You know, it's the very reason why I started to dine for is the the idea that someone's favorite restaurant really speaks to who they are and where they came from. And it sounds like this restaurant, because of the warmth and not only the quality of the food, but also reminds you of how you grew up in Mexico and how, you know, what you love most in the world, right? So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I know you began your musical career at a very young age. Can you talk a little bit about how did you get into the music industry? How did you get your start? Well, uh, I don't I, I don't think I mean, I have a lot of talent except music. So I was not in the music industry, but I was a VJ DJ at the right. time when I was eight. So it was much I mean, more. But who, who becomes a VJ at the age of eight? That's incredible. <laughs> how did that happen? Well, listen, it's very important to make sure when people say, oh, I've done it all by myself. Nobody does it all by themselves. As talented as you might be, there's always somebody who gave you some help along the way. So I'm aware of that privilege that I had Mm -hmm. when I was eight. And my dad knew the owner of a radio station and he told him, listen, I know you're 
your daughter is like very into music and just wanting to do something in radio. So we're going to hold auditions. So it's not like I, it was a shoe in that I had the gig, but definitely had the privilege of knowing that auditions were being held at this radio station. You know, I went along with thousands of other kids and it was for a show called La Hora Menuda. And there was this very big band at the moment called Menudo, which is where Ricky Martin came came out of. And and we were all wanting to, you know, marry Ricky Martin at that time. So (laughs) we're all very interested (laughs) in being that, you know, DJ of the radio station because my plan was, when Menudo comes to town, I'll get to meet Ricky. We'll fall in love and get married. <laughs> and I had my whole life planned at age eight. And it was a good plan. It was yeah, a good needless plan. Needless to say, that did not pan out for me. But, but I had uh, nothing to do with you. It was right, not a reflection of you, Beatrice. Right. So you know what? That gives me a lot of comfort. Yes. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, listen, so I literally, thats that was my motivation to like really get into... Uh, radio primarily, right? And I have a horrible singing voice. So definitely, even if I had aspirations to myself be in the music industry, that was not going to happen. And then, you know, I continued with my radio sort of career or start of my career as a kid. And I wanted to also explore TV. So I started doing TV in my teens as well and continued to do radio for, for a long, long time. And it's interesting now how podcasting is so big that people are like, oh, do you have an aspiration to go back to that? I'm like, I have no time for that, but I love it. Every time I'm invited to a podcast, I enjoy it so much. So, and you were a media correspondent, you won many awards, and you really got a firsthand look at the media industry, right? How do you think it's changed from when you first began to how it is now? Uh, Well, did you ever see the movie Bombshell? Yes. (laughs) So that was my that was my life. So literally because I grew up in Mexico, right? And and Mexico at the time was just a very male-dominated entertainment industry and media industry. Definitely things have changed, but you know, when I was in my teens, you know, you were definitely warned that you needed to be the girlfriend, quote unquote, right, Mm. of a producer to be able to even have a chance to go to a casting. And, you know, in my very naive mind, I was like, okay, so if I need to be the girlfriend of a producer, then I'll just be the producer, right? (laughs) And at the time, there are no women producers at this network, right? Like at all. Mm. And not even only did I want to be a producer, but I want to be the executive producer. And Mm -hmm. they didn't even know what that meant, right? And I, I think, you know, I grew up as a border girl. I grew up with one foot in the U.S., one foot in Mexico, So I certainly grew up with all of the pop culture from the U.S. and even with media, knowing like what was the difference between a producer and an executive producer. I'm like, this executive producers will make the final call. This is exactly who I want to be. You know, so in Mexico, when I was like, listen, I want to be the executive producer. They're like, okay. So I was like, perfect. Now that I'm the executive producer, I get to hire myself. I don't need to sleep (laughs) with anybody but myself, which I'm cool with. And, you know, that was the start of my career in in TV, which was very interesting. So definitely having an opinion was not something people were used to, right? Yeah. Whenever I would tell like the lighting director, I'm like, listen, there's all these shadows on my face. They're like, light creates shadows. And I was like, yeah, but not on my face. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, who are you? Like, we're not used to a woman telling us anything less yeah. that we're not lighting correctly after 40 years that we've been doing this job. So I had, you know, uh, mm. I have a good share of stories there, but I'm very grateful to that very closed, you know, boys club 
because thanks to that, you know, I got fired from my job. I'll tell you in a second. And I was able to start my career as an independent producer and as an entrepreneur. And I'm so, so, so grateful for that. Right. I, I don't know. I think my life would have been very different should I have stayed at the network wearing my mini skirts and my skimpy tops, which mm. certainly in the 50s I would look terrible in. Um, <laughs> I was 18 at the time. so I, But how did you get fired? What, what happened? So very interesting, right? At that time, the network had this policy where if you got a little bit out of line, out of your lane or spoke mm-hmm. up primarily as a woman, uh, but they had a few men, but it was mostly women. They would put you in something they would call the refrigerator to cool you off. So they're like, oh, so-and-so already has a lot of power, which really meant you've been vocal or you've sp- spoke up against wow. something that you thought was not correct. And so there was another very, very, very big TV journalist that was put on in that refrigerator. <laughs> the refrigerator. You continue you continue to get your salary. And, and it was an incredibly generous salary, especially if you were talent. But you were completely washed out of everything. And this this network owned everything. They owned all the radio stations. They owned all the newspapers. So when they put you off in this refrigerator, you were nowhere to be seen in media. So you would go from like the most popular talent to nobody knowing that you existed ever again until they decided maybe to take you out of the fridge. But some, some women were never taken out of the fridge, but they generously continued to get their salary. Now, I'm in my... I think I was 21, 22 at the time. I just won my Emmys. I just won my MTV award. And I'm just thinking like, I am on top of the world, right? <laughs> so when they're like, we're going to put you in this refrigerator, but you connect your, collect your salary. I'm like, yeah, no, I, I quit. So it's very mm-hmm. funny because every time I tell this story and my mom's somewhere around here, she's like, Mijita, you were not fired. You quit. I'm like, mom, but you're pretty much fired when they tell you they're going to disappear you from your career. And why do you think they disappeared you? Why did they want to put you in the refrigerator? So at the time I was just getting a ton of exposure after obviously my Emmys and my MTV awards to, I was doing a lot of things in in the U.S. and L.A. Hmm. So the men who were in their 60s, 70s, uh, and were accustomed to having the hosting the Academy Awards or doing this or getting all everything was going to me, right? So it's like wow. who's this little border girl? She's a woman, she's in her 20s. Like, so they complained to the network president of like, you know, she has too much power, she's too vocal, she's pissing off the lighting directors, telling them she doesn't <laughs> like the way she's led. And and so, you know, it was a way of like, this is Control. not how we do things around here. Yeah. And let us put you in your place, little girl. And, you know, just so you learn a lesson, but that was really the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Right. And and is that what, was that what prompted you to start Me Too? Absolutely. Well, I started, so, so very interesting. And this is what also prompted me to start Suma, which is now Mm -hmm. my new financial fintech company. I, like many other Latinos and Latinas in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., lived for the day right? Like it's mm-hmm. like, I, my parents were college educated, so I can't say my parents didn't know better, but I never grew up talking about saving, investing, planning for the future, an emergency savings account, nothing. So the day I resigned or I was fired, whatever it is, and, and I decided not to take the salary, I was living so large, right? I, I had mm-hmm. a penthouse in Mexico City, you know, your talent, your royalty there, mm-hmm. um, you're on the cover of every magazine, you're and I remember going to this supermarket and my American Express card was declined to buy oh. a carton of milk, oh right? And goodness. there I was, you won't believe it. 
Mm-hmm. On a cover of a magazine with Ricky Martin. So full circle from when I was eight to when I was in my 20s. And looking at this magazine, looking at my credit cards decline, they're like, lady, like you can't buy this milk. And I remember crying my eyes out outside of that Mexican supermarket. I have such a vivid memory. And I'm just like, oh my God, like I have no job. I have no money. Like I'm living so large here. This is crazy. So people, when they ask me, oh, how did you become an entrepreneur? It's like by necessity, right? Like I was like, what do I do? So I started my own production company, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. in my house. It definitely had a lot of space. I had a lot of room for me to start my production company. Quickly, I asked the landlord to move me to a normal apartment and not be in the penthouse. Uh, But anyhow, so I, you know, I I had a lot of contacts, obviously, in the entertainment industry. There was something that in the U.S. was very popular called electronic press kits, where you would interview, you know, musicians and talent, and then they would distribute these interviews, as you know, to a lot of journalists. And we did not have that in Mexico. So I started this company called EPK Productions, exactly Mm -hmm. that, and explaining like, listen, I could do, you know, what Elton John does, but for you, you know, Menudo, Mana, you know, whoever, right? At the time, who was very, were very popular. Uh, Now it would be Bad Bunny, but he didn't make it. I don't think he was. (laughs) Um, So that's how I started, like as an independent producer, entrepreneur in a way, but it was just me, a solopreneur to say that. But it was at a really important time where, all the American networks were launching their signals to Latin America when the cable boom happened, totally dating myself. And so I was at the right time at the right place to, you know, to start my own my own company. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm or your life, You can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com slash dine. At the beginning of this podcast, I ask, what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? While the To Dine For podcast provides the restaurants and the people, where are you getting your wine? Uncork.com is an online wine shop that brings the best part of buying wine right into your home. This carefully curated collection of wines range in price to accommodate every budget, from everyday best buys all the way to very special occasion wines. Uncork.com features family-owned wineries from all corners of the globe, California to France, Washington to Italy. If you're looking to broaden your wine horizons, learn about new producers and get great customer service, 
just like your local wine shop. Head over to uncork.com. Use code TDF20 to get 20% off your first purchase. Now back to our conversation. But, you know, here you are, you know, having all of these experiences with this going up against the old boys club, you get put in the refrigerator, so to speak, and you decide (laughs) just, yeah, I'm not going to do this. But many people then wouldn't have the courage or the wherewithal or the talent or skill to create something on their own. You did, right? So you had that within you. You say it's by necessity, but you could have gotten a regular job, right? The fact that you went off on your own really speaks to kind of who you are. When you think about those early days of your production company, what did you learn then that has stayed with you and has served you well today? Um, I mean, I think I, I I definitely learned that there's always a possibility to start over. Mm. I think I learned that nothing is forever, right? Mm. I, I never would have had imagined that I wasn't going to be in that comfort place that I was at the time, right? Like, you know, my, my shows had the top ratings. I'd won all these awards for a network that they've never seen an Emmy in their lifetime, right? Um, mm. And I just thought, I'm just going to be old here. Like, this is my career. So that was an early on uh, decision also that things can really change in a, within a second. So, you know, planning and financial education and financial literacy was critical and it was something that I just did not have. And I think also that, you know, it's very important for you to stand up for what you really believe in. So mm. if I was put in the refrigerator because of, you know, I was a woman and I was speaking up and I didn't agree with the way things were, I don't regret doing that. I, I'm glad that I, because I, I come from a culture, anybody listening who is a Latina primarily would really identify with this. I come from a culture where girls only, never boys, are encouraged to be very quiet. And our grandmas and our moms keep saying this phrase to us, calladita te ves más bonita, when you're quiet, you look prettier. And it is horrifying, right? (laughs) Oh my gosh. So imagine this. And to this day, like, I I, I mean, it's crazy. My my, my kids heard it from a teacher once in Los Angeles, in Santa Monica, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And like, my daughter was like, my mom has a whole campaign against that. (laughs) (laughs) Because I just think it's mortifying when you think about Latinas in this country being at the bottom of the pay gap being the ones who get the least funding for their companies. I can't imagine, right, as bad as the system is for women in general with equal pay, I can't really imagine CEOs of companies waking up in the morning thinking, how do we pay Latinas less than everyone, right? Like, mm. And I, I do think, and I've seen this in my own companies now as, as a CEO and as a founder, where you promote a Latina and they never ask you about the pay. And if you tell them what the pay is, they, they never negotiate. They're always very grateful. We tend to be very grateful people. And that's what we're taught. Be grateful. Keep your head down. Don't make any waves. Stay in your place. Calladita te ves más bonita. Quiet. You look prettier. So that was a whole system, right? So I think I learned that for the first time that going against what I had learned and what was valued in my household from my mother, from my grandmother, although it didn't feel comfortable, it was something I really had to do. And, yeah. and that's been sort of like my life mission also in how I mentor other primarily Latina entrepreneurs, Latina founders, Latina leaders of it's uncomfortable because, you know, you feel like you are not living up to the expectations of what you learned as a girl. You're going against the culture. 
Yeah, you're going you're against your entire. Yeah, that's hard, and that is it's uncomfortable, hard. and it's very much. Um, people talk about the importance of culture, and and you know, it's your your base, it's your love, it's your family, right? You don't want to go against any of that, and but what if it's you know at your own detriment? And it sounds like, in some respects, it is. Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. it, I, I'm uncomfortable to this day, right? People are like, no, you're such a good negotiator. I have a stomach ache every time I negotiate my salary, my equity, you know, my board pay, whatever yeah. it is, I am not comfortable, right? Because yeah. I, you know, I was taught that just be grateful for whatever you're given. And so negotiating is not that. Hmm. So you you made reference to calling yourself a border girl. So I imagine what has it been like to have had really one foot in one culture and the other foot in another culture. You have speak English, you speak Spanish, you have been going back and forth. Obviously you started in Mexico with, you know, on the airwaves of Mexico, but you've also like been able to transcend all of that to work very successfully in American culture. What has that process been like for you personally? Well, I think that being a border girl definitely helped me shape my dual identity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've told this story so much. My, my dad was a very proud Mexican man. My parents lived in San Diego when my mom's pregnant. And he decided for me to be a Mexican national because, mm-hmm. you know, he had big aspirations for me to one day be president of my country, which I'm not going to oh, be. I don't, it's interesting awesome. how he never, he never thought I could be president of this country. He just thought <laughs> I could be president. However, you know, mm-hmm. when you live in, the, in, in as a border person, you are all constantly going back and forth physically, right? Yes. So some people like go to school. Yeah, I went to school in San Diego, but then you cross the border and go to the market and buy all your favorite stuff at the our, our version of a Grand Central Market, yes. which is amazing. And so you're always being able to do things in both sides and you sort of develop your own hybrid identity, right? You take the best of both worlds and make it your own. So the foods that you eat, the music that you listen to, the media that you consume. It's always from both sides of of both countries. And then you sort of make your own identity. And I think that's been very, very critical for me, particularly for what I, you know, what I did with, with Me Too and with what I'm doing now with Suma, really understanding this generation that is U.S. born, and that very much feels that they don't belong, that they don't belong in their own country. Um, they're not American enough. And when they visit the countries of origin of their parents, because they are American, <laughs> they're not Mexican enough or mm. Colombian enough or mm. Argentinian enough, whatever it is, right? They're like, ah, oh, you're a gringo, you're a pocho, you're, you know, like you speak funny with an accent in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Here, people ask him, well, no, where are you really from? Like uh, the U.S., you know, Washington, you know, Florida, whatever. He's like, no, no, but really, really. I'm like, oh, so you're trying to ask me where my parents from? Like, you're never really from here. So I think having those experiences early on and, and what is that sort of like that duality in your life really helped me build this media company where I wanted to make sure Latinos, especially U.S. Latinos, felt like they absolutely belonged and that they absolutely were seen, they were heard, they were there with like-minded people and that the content that we created was exactly their experience growing up. Media in the U.S. for Latinos has primarily been in Spanish and it's been imported primarily from this network that I used to work in. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that experience of just being super Mexican from Mexico City doesn't even compare to the experience of somebody who's more of a border person or from, you know, somewhere outside of the city. 
Um, so I think, you know, that experience definitely has shaped me uh, in everything that I've done. And although I was not U.S. born myself, you know, it was al- almost right. I was born and then I was brought to the to the U.S. a few days later after my mom gave birth. You made reference, um, especially when you quit your job, to <laughs> talking about finances. And really, it was almost like the seeds of what you're doing now were being planted. Can you explain what SUMA is and why you started it? Yes. So all the credit goes to my co-founder of why I started it, really. And his name's Javier Gutierrez. He's been in finance and private equity his entire life. And when I, you know, when I was done with with Me Too, we we sold the company a few years ago. My intent was to only focus on my philanthropy. My my family has a family foundation, and I'm incredibly enthusiastic about really supporting the next generation of Latino leaders and entrepreneurs through education and through access to to capital. So Javier and I have been friends for a long time, and I was getting his advice on launching also a fund to support Latina, Latina entrepreneurs. And he was like, what you really need to do is launch this company that I've been dreaming of for 10 years, which is all about financial literacy. And I thought, oh my God, like you couldn't have chosen a worse person to launch a company like that. I'm like, first of all, I'm not a financier. Uh, (laughs) Second of all, I had no idea where I would start. Like I would need to take all those courses myself. And, you know, I'm a marketing girl, right? Like I'm, and he was like, that's exactly why. Because if you look at all the, all the fintechs that are being launched today, the whole premise of everything is they have a very big focus on product as they should, Mm -hmm. but they have a very hard time building community, right? Mm -hmm. So the whole thesis of if we build it, they will come serve some demographics, but certainly is not serving young Latinos. So Latinos are definitely have not made their mind yet. And I hopefully it. With the scale we've reached in a year, it's going to be SUMA. But when we launched, there's no favorite brand when it came to finances, whether it was traditional financial institution or a fintech. They, they just had a very hard time acquiring Latinos at scale, whether they were older, Spanish Dom, or U.S. born and younger. So, you know, I thought, listen, thanks for the idea, but absolutely not. Then COVID hits. And he would send me articles every day on how Latinos not only were the hardest hit health-wise, but also financially. And I would see it with my own friends, not knowing what a PPP loan was, not knowing what a furlough was, not knowing how to apply for um, these loans or these grants. And, and I just thought, oh, can somebody make it easy, you know, easy in culture, like, please don't use that, like the small print from the banks and nobody was doing it. So I thought, listen, I'm going to do a test and just launch like an Instagram account. So it's not really a company, but let's see if it has traction. And it got so much traction. It got so much engagement that um, I, I, you know, started to hear from a couple investors who were like, oh, is this a new company? Can we fund it? And, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, as you know, access to capital is very difficult, primarily for women, even more for Latinas, even more for immigrants, and even more for women over 50. So I check all those boxes of you're never going to get funded, lady. And yet again, I was incredibly privileged that I didn't reach out to my first two investors. They reach out to me just saying, we see what you're doing. Is this going to be a fintech company? Are you, can we fund it? I'm like, it doesn't even have a name. Uh, it's not incorporated. Well, that says a lot about you because very few people have people reaching out to them for funding based on their reputation and what they're about. So kudos to you. I was very, again, so privileged to be in that situation for sure. And particularly because my track record, to your point, 
was not in finance. My track record was in building community, building brands at scale. But I guess they saw the same as Javier was pointing out. Like, yes, we see a lot of intercompanies. But the, but the ethos of who you are, which is to support and to celebrate Latina and Latino founders, um, that and all that goes with that, right? When you think about how do you galvanize a community, right? How do you move the needle forward for Latin founders? This is the answer, right? You've got to find funding for them and, and really teach them about finances in a way that they can internalize and create wealth and power for themselves. Absolutely. Because, you know, to give them the funding, but they don't know how to do a budget, right? that's a disaster, right? Sure. And we just don't grow up with with that financial education. And and I have so many people in our community, people who have gone through our money bootcamp at SUMA who are Ivy League educated, master wow. degrees, PhDs. And they're like, this was incredibly helpful. Like we Isn't had great? no idea. And that's really exciting to see, right? And how we are a very communal community, but we're never you know, about self. We're all about others, which mm. could be good at times and bad at other times. In this instance, it's good because the ROI or the, you know, the results that you get from our community are always multiplied. You teach one and you reach many, sure. which is very important in, in, in this case. So when it comes to financial education, financial empowerment, I think that's critical that you're able to give those tools and those research to those influencers in their families and in their communities, and they will teach many. And, and those are the young Latinos, the U.S. born, the ones who are entering the workforce, the ones who are enrolling in college at a very accelerated rate. So that's the demo that we are hyper-focused on because we know that through them we'll be able to reach entire families and communities. You mentioned that when you sold Me Too, you said you were going to put a huge emphasis on philanthropy in your life. I'm wondering what has it been like carrying on your father's vision as president of the Acevedo Foundation and, and what that work has been like for you? Yeah, listen, my dad and I had the most incredible relationship. Like he was my biggest mentor, friend, supporter of anything I wanted to do. So since he passed away five years ago, it's been incredibly hard for me. But I find a lot of comfort in being able to continue his work and his legacy. My father, like many Latino parents or families, came from absolutely nothing. He had so many jobs to put himself through college. And this was in Mexico and college was free. Mm -hmm. And when he became an attorney, he always had a very difficult relationship with money. Actually, he had a very big um, he did not like people who were rich for some for some reason. So when he did well in his career, he felt a, a lot of guilt mm. for having built wealth. So the way he sort of found peace with himself and with the wealth was to give it all back to the community. So he's one of the biggest philanthropists in Mexico, giving land to build tons of universities, cultural centers, sports complexes, everything that's free for the community. So I always had promised that I would make sure that that legacy continued. I'm super proud that a few years ago, I was able to open a chapter of the foundation, which he's had in Mexico for 30 years in the U.S. to also nice. support our community here. So it feels great. You know, uh, I always tell people, my dad was always very much of the mindset of like, you know, everybody has something to give and it doesn't necessarily need to be to write a big check, but 
we all have something to give and, and we want to do a lot more of that in, in the foundation that, you know, if you have, a, you get, get a grant, if you get access to anything, you're able to do more, more of that peer mentorship in our community and be able to scale that. So it's incredibly rewarding. I wish I could do that full time, but obviously I started a new startup, which is like having a new baby. Yes, I believe uh, you. But yeah, one, one day it'll be all the philanthropy, but I, I enjoy doing both, but I get little sleep. Tell me, you have a wealth of experience. When you think back to your early days from that day that you quit to now, what advice would you give to a Latina founder who is starting their own startup right now in their 20s? What advice would you give knowing everything that you know now? Yeah, I, especially for a Latina, you know, use your voice as difficult as it is to defy, you know, your your culture or your family in in speaking up and in having your own opinion. This is a very different country than where our mothers and grandmothers grew up in. And what was serving for them a few generations back is not serving to us today. I would also say that even if you are the only person in a room, the only woman, the only Latina, the first I'm the only one, I always say, lean hard into that. Instead of feeling small, instead of feeling that that is a handicap for you, think about it as an incredible asset. I think that's what's helped me in my career. Every time I walked into boards or uh, VCs where I was that first and only one doing things, I would feel so excited thinking, oh my God, there's nobody here like me, like this is amazing, right? My, my insights, my experience, my point of view is going to be so valuable. And I guess at the time, I didn't know the data of like, how hard it was going to be to raise capital being the first and the only one. Naively enough, I thought that was an asset for me. And I and I'm grateful that I didn't read the data. And I didn't know the stats were completely against me. And they continue to be now that you know, I'm, I'm now older, and people don't like to fund old founders. Um, so I would say, you know, lean hard into being the only one, lean hard into being different and know that everything that that you are and that all your experiences are exactly what's so valuable mm. and dream big, you know, don't be discouraged by people who say, well, you know, it's there's very few people that could, but there's always people who have been able to do it. And there's always people who are going to be charting that way for other generations. And that can be you. Oh, amazing. Beatrice, thank you so much for this time. This is, I wish we were dining together at your favorite Mexican restaurant, but we this will to have do to do. It even without the podcast one day, if you're yes. ever in LA, please let me know. And I need to bring you to La Casita Mexicana. You're just gonna love it. So I would love, love, love to, to be able to do that with you one of these thank days. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to that day. Until then, have a wonderful day. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests, and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at todinefor with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National, Spiritless, and Terlato Wine Group. Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers! Stay hungry and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.